Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jean Elmore. I have been, uh, had the privilege of being part of Habits for over 20 years, both as a, a facilitator and as a student. I'm grateful for the significant impact that this study has had on my life and my understanding of God and his word. Before we begin to examine the passage uh, for today, let us ask for his blessing. Sovereign and loving Lord, you have revealed yourself in your written word through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you fill us this morning with that same Holy Spirit and open our spiritual eyes to the truth. May we submit ourselves to you for the building up of your kingdom here on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> it's been a number of weeks since we were together, and much has taken place in each of our lives, hasn't it? I thought about giving you a pop quiz just to see if you remembered what we'd learned last, uh, but then decided against it. However, I would like to kind of take a look back to see where we have come, what we've covered, and some of the truths that are evident to us in, in that before we get into Lesson 10. First, I'd like to read the uh, theme of Acts as it is written in the ESV Bible. I think it is very um, succinct and, and kind of lays the work, foundation for our uh, study today. In Acts, believers were empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ among the Jews and the Gentiles. And in doing this, they established the church. In addition to this, Acts explains how Christianity, although it is new, is in reality the one true religion, rooted in God's promises from the beginning of time. In the ancient world, it was important that a religion be shown to, be, to have stood the test of time. Thus, Luke presents the church as the fulfillment and extension of God's promises. Well, some of the themes brought out in the whole book of Acts, and particularly in the passage that we're looking at today, include the following. First of all, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is written all over the book of Acts. God controls all things, and because of his perfect love and justice, we can trust him in all situations. Secondly, the establishment of the church is a theme. This is the church worldwide. It was given as a commandment by Jesus to the apostles. Those called to establish the church were empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it was through the working of the Holy Spirit that the church grew rapidly, both in size and in location. <clears throat> Thirdly, devotion to prayer. Uh, if you go through the whole book of Acts and see how often prayer is addressed by the believers. This is communing with God. It was an integral part of the individual and corporate life of the church. And then another theme that comes out uh, again, today very clearly, is persecution of the church and individuals within it. It was a fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. He told the disciples there would be persecution. 
but also it was a part of God's sovereign plan to extend the growth of the church to every nation. With these themes in mind, I'd like to take a quick look back uh, at, at Acts, the chapters that we've already covered. So following his resurrection, Jesus spent time with the apostles, proving that he was alive and commanded them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The gospel of Jesus Christ was to go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles as well. Following Jesus' ascension, the disciples were to stay in Jerusalem and wait so that they might receive the filling of the Holy Spirit, who was to clothe them with power. The Holy Spirit filling on the day of Pentecost empowered the disciples to speak in different languages to different people from different countries, different nations. They happened to be present in Jerusalem because of Jewish festivals. What an amazing demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit and the sovereign hand of God to reach people from many nations that happened to be gathered in one city. Opposition to Jesus' teaching wasn't new. It ultimately resulted in his own death by crucifixion. Many of the same religious leaders that opposed Jesus now opposed his followers. But this didn't stop Peter and the other apostles from pointing to the prophecy in the Old Testament which was now being fulfilled. The New Testament filling as well as the death and resurrection of Jesus, was all in the foreknowledge and sovereign plan of God. Peter taught the people about Jesus and implored them to repent of their sins and be baptized. Subsequently, 3,000 came to believe in Jesus, and then 5,000 responded, and thus the church began. Believers the church consisted of believers who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Devotion to prayer, communing with God, was the backbone of the church. They prayed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit that they might boldly preach the gospel and that they might withstand persecution, to be united as a body of believers. Miraculous healing took place in Jesus' name through the hand of the apostles, resulting in further opposition from the religious leaders. Peter refers to Jesus as holy, the righteous one, author of life, signifying that he was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, and that it was through his name, the resurrected Son of God, that these miracles were being performed. He alone was able to save the people from their sins. Although arrested and charged not to teach and speak in the name of Jesus, the religious leaders recognized the amazing confidence and courage and knowledge of Peter and John as they preached. People realized that these men had been with Jesus and had learned from his teaching. Now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they boldly proclaimed the truth that Jesus had taught them. Their prayer for boldness was granted and they went against the commands of the religious leaders. In chapter 4, the believers acknowledged the sovereignty of God which included his plan 
for salvation through Christ's death at the hands of ungodly rulers. They also saw God's sovereign hand in the immediate events of persecution and repeated arrest. As the community of believers grew, the church was birthed. Not a building or a set of rules and regulations, but a living body of people united under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They had all things in common because they knew that all that they had belonged to God. But pride and deceit entered the heart of Ananias and Sapphira, whom God promptly struck down. This brought great fear among the people who heard of their sudden deaths. Despite this, multitudes of believers were added to the church. And the miraculous signs continued to be performed. Driven by jealousy, the high priest arrested and imprisoned the apostles, but an angel was sent to release them from prison and instructed them to go directly to the temple and teach the words of salvation and eternal life, which they did. In almost comical fashion, the high priests were perplexed by the disappearance of the apostles from prison and were truly unnerved by the fact that they had gone into the temple to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ and the way of salvation. Without force, they brought them uh, back to the council. Things were clearly coming to a head with the religious leaders wanting to kill the apostles. With boldness and certainty, Peter and the apostles declared, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We must obey God rather than men. In God's sovereignty, Gamaliel, a Pharisee, spoke reason into the situation and the apostles' lives were spared, although they received a beating before being released. Upon their release, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. Stephen, who was a respected leader in the church, was falsely accused also, but given an opportunity to respond to the religious leaders whereupon he delivered through the power of the Holy Spirit an amazing teaching on God's sovereign hand throughout the Old Testament, including the patriarchs, the prophets, Moses, all pointing to the promise of redemption through Jesus the Messiah. When he addressed their resistance to the Holy Spirit, referring to them as stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, they became enraged, cast him out of city, the city and stoned him to death. In his last moments, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Both statements were reminiscent of those that Jesus said in his final hours. Following the stoning of Stephen, there was much persecution against the church in Jerusalem and beyond, resulting in believers scattering into Judea, Samaria, and up into Antioch. In the aftermath of Stephen's death, Saul, one of the chief persecutors, was traveling to Damascus to capture followers of Christ, and he was himself confronted by Jesus in a very dramatic way. 
A great light surrounded him, and he was blinded, having to be led by hand along the road to Damascus. God prepared a man, Ananias, through a vision to Saul, to go to Saul and lay hands on him so that his sight could be restored and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. After joining the disciples in Damascus, Saul immediately went into the temple to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, something he had vehemently opposed days before. What an amazing turnabout. It says in Scripture, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Knowing that the Jews wanted to kill him now, uh, Paul escaped from Damascus in a basket let down over the city wall. Back in Jerusalem, the disciples were all afraid of him, not knowing if he truly was a follower of Christ or not. Barnabas steps in to introduce Saul to the apostles and tell them of Saul's conversion and boldness in preaching the truth of who Jesus is to all. He was taken to Tarsus by the brothers. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria experienced peace and was growing and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Peter continues to preach the good news through Jesus Christ. He heals people. He raised Dorcas from the dead. That caused many people to come to Christ. Peter had been preaching to the Jews, but in chapter 10, we see a major shift take place. Cornelius, a Gentile soldier and devout, God-fearing man, is approached in a vision by an angel who instructs him to have Peter brought to him. Peter comes with some of the brothers to the house of Cornelius, where friends and relatives have joined him. They want to hear all that the Lord has commanded Peter. Peter tells them that the Lord has made it clear that he shows no partiality. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter briefly describes Jesus' purpose for coming to earth, his life, death, and resurrection as well as his command to preach to the people that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. The Holy Spirit has poured out on all who heard. Those circumcised men who had come with Peter were amazed that the Gentiles too uh, were to receive the Holy Spirit. Peter commanded them to be baptized just as all others who had received the Holy Spirit. Word came to Jerusalem that Gentiles also had received the word of God and that Peter had actually been eating with the Gentiles. Peter explains in detail the vision he had and the instruction he had been given from God and subsequently the Holy Spirit filling the Gentiles. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way. This is from Acts eleven seventeen. Following this, they were convinced that God had granted repentance leading to life for the Gentiles as well. 
There's a map that you're probably familiar with, um, and I'd like you to just kind of focus on it as I continue on. Much of the focus in Acts thus far has centered in Jerusalem, which is down south, and the surrounding areas. This is where the church began and where the apostles were based. However, with the increasing persecution against the followers of Jesus Christ, they scattered to other regions such as Phoenicia, north of Galilee. I don't think they have that written on this one, but it's just north of um, the Galilee, the area around the lake. Cyprus, which was the island off the coast, and they also went up to Antioch, as I mentioned before. Antioch contained Greeks, Jews, Asians, Romans, Hellenist Jews, it was located 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. Rome and Alexandria were the other two large cities. Once again, in God's sovereignty, persecution of the believing church brought about the spread of the gospel by scattering believers to other regions. Initially, they spoke only to Jews in these areas, but believers from Cyprus and Cyrene, which is off the coast of Africa, spoke to the Hellenists in Antioch. The main leadership of the church remained in Jerusalem, and that included Barnabas. Luke described Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, as a man who was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. You might remember that Barnabas was a Levite, and he is from, was from Cyprus, the island. He was noted to be generous, conciliatory, and one who looked out for the good of others, as he did, uh, he demonstrated this when he stood up for Saul when the apostles were skeptical of him. He knew about Saul and his bold testimony, and so it was not surprising that following Barnabas's trip to Antioch, where he saw the grace of God being poured out on the people he went on up to Tarsus, which is north of Antioch, a little bit west. And he went up there to get Saul, bring him back to Antioch so that he could join him in teaching the people. Saul stayed with him for a year. Saul had, prior to this, been up in Tarsus, and it is estimated that he was up there for seven years or more, studying and teaching. The believers in Antioch were for the most part new in their faith and so having Barnabas and Saul stay with them for a year helped to establish the foundational truths that they needed to know about Jesus. It was at this time that the believers were first called Christians. The scenario in Acts 11 27 to 29 indicates that the church of believers did not regard geographic boundaries when it came to reaching out to give aid to other believers who were suffering. Prophets from Jerusalem went all the way up to Antioch to tell them of a coming famine. Something hadn't happened yet, but they knew a famine was coming. And this would affect primarily the area of Judea. 
Disciples in Antioch encouraged all to give what they could to, dis- to provide relief for those in the area of Judea. This was done through the elders and sent by Barnabas and Saul, and it demonstrated an initial Gentile-Jewish unity that now existed in the church. Persecution of the church continued under the reign of Herod Agrippa. He was a grandson of Herod the Great. You might remember Herod the Great being the one that was reigning at the time Jesus was born and had all the baby boys, two years and younger, killed. In an effort to possibly appease the Jews and inflate his own standing, Herod Agrippa had James the Apostle killed. This did please the Jews who hated the Christians. So Herod also arrested Peter and put him in prison until the days of unleavened bread would be completed and at which time Herod would also kill Peter. Peter had had two previous imprisonments by Jewish leaders recorded in chapters 4 and 5 Through these imprisonments, Peter and John affirmed the sovereignty of God and prayed for increasing boldness to proclaim the word of God. They knew that all of this was in the Lord's hands and it was his plan for the spread of the gospel. I'd like to read the account of Peter's imprisonment in Acts 12, starting at verse 4. It's a familiar story to most of you, I'm sure. Uh, But it's not only intriguing to see how the story of Peter's escape occurs, but also to see the response of those who earnestly pray for Peter. As we read this, keep in mind the sovereignty and power of God, the trust and peace that Peter had in the Lord, and the disbelief of the people who were earnestly praying for Peter. And when he, Herod, had seized him, Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries, Before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, 
where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. But when day came, there was no disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and didn't find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. What a story. Um, and at times you're, it's a nail biter, isn't it? But it's also humorous. The suspense, the miraculous intervention, the joy of that servant girl, Rhoda, and the disbelief of those who were praying for Peter's safe release. In the words of John Stott, it is ironical that the group who were praying fervently and persistently for Peter's deliverance should regard as mad the person who informed them that their prayers had been answered. Did they believe in the sovereignty of an all-powerful God? Undoubtedly, they were still mourning the recent martyrdom of James. Did they have faith that God would intervene in this impossible situation and bring good out of a seemingly hopeless dilemma? What did they think about the deaths of Stephen and James? Was God's sovereignty at work there? Was his will accomplished? And would good come out of these things? In, this, in these scenarios, we have the benefit of knowing the good that did come out of these deaths and the persecution which followed, the church scattered and grew at an amazing rate. The faith of those remaining deepened. The Holy Spirit gave them boldness. Within the Old Testament, God made it clear that he was omnipotent and controlled all things. He created all things and his plan was sure and would not be thwarted. Isaiah 46.10 says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. In his sovereignty, God foreordained the killing of his own son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be saved. This attribute, sovereignty of God, is seamlessly intertwined with his steadfast love, his omniscience and wisdom, he is clearly beyond our comprehension, isn't he? But we can trust him, and his ways are completely trustworthy. It is because of this complete trust that we can come to him in prayer, as he told us to do. Psalm fifty, fifteen says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, 
thou shalt glorify me. Luke 18, 1 says, men ought always to pray and not faint. He promises to hear and to answer us. In a small book by Stanley Gale, entitled, Why Do We Pray? He says, prayer is a means by which God enfolds us into the outworking of his eternal plan. Prayer is God's means for God's ends. Prayer is intended by God to engage us in the accomplishment of his purposes for his own glory and goals. A persistent prayer waits on the Lord in accordance with his purposes, keeping our gaze longingly and expectantly on our God. Recall the parable of the judge who was repeatedly approached by the widow in in Luke 18. Jesus used this parable to teach, teach us the fact that, yes, we can persist in our prayers. It is God's design that we pursue him, being importunate in prayer. We are not to be deflated by apparent silence to our pleas. Psalm 37, 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. The apostles and the believers at that time prayed through the persecution and trials that they experienced. As we see our own culture becoming more hostile toward the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, are we equipped to be a bold witness for the hope that resides within us? Do we have the peace that passes all understanding when confronted with accusations and insults. We have reassuring words from Romans 8, 35 to 39, and also Philippians 4, 7. First of all, in Romans, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Philippians says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peter knew this love and experienced the peace of God as he slept while in prison. Can you imagine He knew the intent of Herod was to kill him the next day. He actually had to be awakened with a serious poke in the ribs by the angel. He was that peaceful. Psalm 145, 18 and 19 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth 
He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Psalm 91, 15. When he calls me, I will answer. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. In times of distress, persecution, or trial, we also have the assurance that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Following in in chapter 8 of Romans, uh, at verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Isn't it comforting to know that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and he does it in accordance with God's will? We can trust God in all things, knowing that he is sovereign and fully trustworthy. We do not need to know that he is going, what he is going to do next. He is the miracle-working God, and when we surrender to him completely, we should not be, be surprised one bit at anything he does. It is through this that he reveals to us who he is. Our response should be to give him praise and glorify his name. Prayer is not made pointless by the sovereign power of God. Our prayers, no less than our, their answers, are part of God's design. The whole thing fits together. It is God's will and promise. Prayer changes things in this world. 1 Thessalonians five seventeen and 8 says, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Christ Jesus for you. Prayer is a powerful instrument for the kingdom issued to us by our king. It can be wielded privately or corporately, but in each case, the power resides in the Lord and his purposes, not in the prayer itself or in the agreement of those that pray. We see God's perfect plan unfold in the book of Acts, don't we? his sovereignty, his love for all people, his desire to be in relationship with them. Because of the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that relationship with God the Father is possible for all who put their faith and trust in him. All those who come to faith in Christ will be filled with the Holy Spirit and commune with God through prayer. Thank you.